Welcome to episode 141 of This Week in Linux, your number one source for Linux GNU's. Technically, it's the only show that calls it Linux GNU's, but still number one. This episode is going to be a bit different. I've been doing this show for about four years now, and I think it's time for some musical chairs, so to speak. I want to mix it up, and I want to make a few changes. I think I've been in a comfort zone type of thing, and occasionally I like to change it up and have a bit of fun with it. So if you've been a long-term Twiller, you may remember what the show was like a year and a half ago. I think the style was significantly different back then, and while I like the current style too, I think there's something missing. I don't know what that is exactly, and so there's, you know, that's what this change is, and I guess you can call it an experiment. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit about like the stuff that is currently doing right now for the show and also some stuff I used to do and kind of merge it together and we'll see what happens. Uh, it might work out fantastically or it might blow up in my face. Either way, it'll probably be entertaining. Uh, and I know I can hear your thoughts on this one. Michael, you might want to do this testing offline rather than during a live stream so you can make adjustments if you need to. And to that, I say, you're right. I should. But from the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell, and if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to talk about a secure boot vulnerability with Grub2. EU announced the EU Parliament re announced release rules for the right to repair, uh, how they affect that, and it's going to be really interesting. Uh, also, we have some news from Valve over the Steam Link, which has a lot of things that are changing for gaming on Linux, and this is gonna be really cool. It might not seem like it's very important, but it actually is. And we've got a lot of new distro news this week with news from Ubuntu, OpenSUSE, Linux Mint, System Rescue, and even Linux from scratch. Also, we've got some media production topics to discuss with Blender, Ardor, and a new synthesizer called Vital. All that and so much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNU's. Before we get started this week, I want to do a quick announcement to do a follow-up that we talked about last week. There was a big announcement from the Destination Linux Network. We did an announcement on DLs, episode 215, and if you didn't watch it, I want to go ahead and let you know what it is right now. We're going to be doing a Lugfest. That's a Linux user group fest sort of thing, and we're also going to stream it so that you can, whether you want to join or not, you can also watch and have and, and, and participate that way in the live chat. Uh, or you can join us in the room to have a conversation about really anything. And it could be Linux, open source, geeky related stuff, comics, who knows? Anything. It's just it's just a hangout that we're going to do with the community. It's going to happen on Sunday, March 21st, right after the the episode of Destination Linux that airs that day. So be sure to uh, put it on your calendar, schedule it, be there. And it, it is open to everyone because normally we do it where patrons can join at, at the, for the a post show hangout. Uh, but this is going to be open to anyone who wants to. So so you'll need to uh, put it on your calendar and also uh, join the DLN forum. Go to dlnforum.com and we'll have a post there that will give you a link to the room for Zoom. The link is not going to be posted until actually the, the weekend of so that it doesn't get collected by spammers and that sort of stuff. But you will need to get an account on the forum in order to get that link. So be sure to do that. And let's get to the show. Uh, first in the show this week, we have to talk about a vulnerability issue, some security news related to Grub2. And that is a flaw in Grub2 bootloader that impacts pretty much any system using SecureBoot. And this flaw allows an attacker to bypass SecureBoot protections to load unsigned kernel modules. 
UEFI Secure Boot is intended to protect systems by verifying the software used to boot up a system. And an attacker can use this Grub2 flaw to bypass the Secure Boot mechanism. And once the kernel is loaded, it's able to send a change in the configuration file, which is essentially allowing the attacker to leverage the flaw by instructing Grub after a reboot to load a custom advanced configuration and power interface table, or the ACPI or ACPI, ASP. I don't know, which disables the kernel's lockdown mechanism, further allowing unsigned code to be loaded into the kernel space, possibly compromising the system's data integrity. And the, the, the rating of this particular flaw is, is not necessarily as, it sounds really bad. And it is bad, and it needs to be fixed, and it is being addressed, and it will probably take a while for it to be addressed, but that's actually okay because it's in a sort of status of a moderate issue. So this is kind of like it's, it is possible to compromise a system with this flaw. However, it does require a lot more uh, specifics to be able to exploit it. So for example, it impacts only environments using secure boot. It requires elevated privileges as well, which means it would either someone have to already have root level privileges in order to use a vulnerability, or they would need to have a physical control of the device in order to, to use this vulnerability. So it's not as bad as it sounds. It is bad. But it, it could have been way worse. But since it's not an attack vector, it's more of like once you've already got in, you can use this to elevate and kind of take over the system. Uh, but that, you know, it's not as bad as it sounds, though it is a little bit bad. And it's going to be a bit messy because the, um, the remedy of this kind of thing requires a lot of stuff being revoked. And it has to have a new scheme for handling certificates and signatures of packages and uh, just basically a new implementation going forward. And this is going to be a little while to have everything pushed out. So uh, it's more of like, we found this, some stuff has been mitigated, some of it not yet. But on the bright side, it's not as bad as some people are, are presenting that it is. Because uh, you know that every single time there's a security vulnerability that it was discovered that relates to Linux, the, the tech news just jumps on it and just like it's like it's gold to them yay we get to make fun of linux having security even though windows happens every day you know it's because it's so rare that linux has these kinds of issues that it's very notable so they love it when they see that and in this case while it is bad it's not that bad but if you like to learn more about this i'll have links to the uh notice from the Grub post on their, the GNU.org website, as well as uh, some references from distros like uh, SUSE, Red Hat, and Canonical. Uh, they've talked about it as well. So I have links to all of that in the show notes. Up next in the show, we, something, we have something great to talk about, and that is that the EU has issued some rules related to right to repair. This new rule requires a technology to last for a decade, for example, which is just unheard of and at, at this point. A company's well, that sell consumer electronics in the uh, European Union will need to ensure that those goods can be repaired for up to 10 years. This change comes as a result of legislation from the European Parliament, which recently voted in favor of establishing stronger right to repair rules. And these rules should help reduce electrical waste and also a bunch of other stuff, which has been, you know, uh, an issue for quite a while now. And this is interesting because a uh, person named Daniel Affelt of the environmental group Bund Berlin 
I probably said that wrong. I apologize. Uh, this is a really big step in the right direction. They say that this that they deal with uh, repair cafes, which is a really cool concept, which where people can bring in their broken appliances and get help fixing them up, uh, which is really cool. But uh, they've had issues where people have brought in their stuff and they couldn't get the supplies. They couldn't get like parts to fix it. Also, there's issues with a lot of appliances having stuff glued or welded together. Uh, and if, if you need specialist tools to work on them, or some cases you can't even work on them at all because it'll void warranties and that sort of stuff. Uh, but under these new EU rules, manufacturers will have to ensure parts are available for up to a decade. Uh, the, though some will only be provided to professional repair companies, so it's not exactly you know a full openness in every way, but it is. this is still an improvement because there are certain things that repair companies are necessary because... Some things are just too complicated to do DIY, so it does make sense they have that they have that as an a, an option. Uh, so it'll it'll still require that information to be available and the parts to be available, but it might you know something that requires installation specifically, uh, like a like a, a professional installation would make more sense to have companies do it. And also, new devices will, ha will also have to come with a repair manual and be made in such a way that it can be dismantled using conventional tools when they really can't be fixed anymore to improve recycling. So the German Environment Minister, uh, Svenja Schulz, I totally said that wrong, I also almost guaranteed, sorry about that, said that in, a, in the next step, a manufacturer should have to state how long a product is expected to work for and repair it if it breaks down earlier. Now, this is great because this would encourage companies to uh, build more durable products and sort of stuff like that, but also it makes it where they're not having incentive to create in... I guess you could call it planned obsolescence because a lot of people have talked about, um, you know, referring to manufacturers designing their devices to not last as long so that you would buy more and give you incentive to buy more. There are many reports that have stated that uh, some cases where devices will break shortly after the warranty expires. And, you know, it seems very unlikely that that's accidental. However, that is allegedly uh, based on the reports. Uh, I'm not saying that that's how they're doing it, but it does seem to a lot of people that they are doing planned obsolescence in many ways. But there is a catch right now, and that is these rules currently do not apply to smartphones, laptops, and other small devices. But instead, it's for things like refrigerators, washers, hair dryers, and TVs, and that sort of stuff. So I wanted to bring it up because it is awesome to see that the EU is doing something for right to repair, because right to repair is very important and has been just it, it's kind of sad that it takes this kind of effort from a government to stop companies from doing this but it does seem that it is necessary so i'm glad that it is being done because right there's also some right to repair bills that have been introduced in various uh, u.s states legislatures but it's been somewhat in limited in scope across the country so this one seems to be more like much broader across all of the eu which i think is going to be uh, a kind of a game changer. And also it'll probably affect the U.S. in ways uh, because if they're going to sell the products to the EU, they also will probably not, you know, rebuild them for the U.S. and other places because it would just be too much effort. Uh, but uh, I think this is really cool. And in another st step in the right direction for the EU, they're also talking about a proposal for a universal charger for mobile devices. There are proposals from the EU to make a universal charger that will work on any type of mobile device and while also it's sad that this has to happen again, it is worth noting because and we currently don't have a universal charger. And also we have companies like Apple and Samsung and other companies that are not even giving you a charger anymore. 
So, like, uh, they're actually arguing that it's for eco reasons. What? Oh, so, you know, you know, people still need chargers. And in some cases, if they're new customers, they're not going to have a charger. So they're going to have to have more stuff shipping to them. And they might even buy it third party, which means they're going to get an even bigger box to do the packaging, the shipping. So you're actually doing the exact opposite of what you're claiming. So, yeah, just thought that was worth noting. So it's really cool that EU is doing this for the rack to repair and potentially uh, for the universal charger aspect. That'd be very good, too. So if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the uh, independent article that I'm showing on the screen right now for the right to repair and also another one for the uh, universal charger in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we got some awesome news from Valve, and that is the Steam Link application is now available for Linux systems. Now, this is very cool, and it's also thanks to Collabora for making it possible. The Valve team specifically pointed out that Collabora helped make this happen, which is fantastic. Uh, we talked about Collabora in a previous episode, so it's really awesome to see that they continue to do uh, great work like this. So maybe you don't know what Steam Link is. Basically, the idea is that it will let you stream content from your Steam machine to and by not a, a PC or whatever to a different device like an Android phone. It was it was only supported for Windows, iOS, Android, and Raspberry Pi, but now Linux has been added to this mix. So why does this matter? Well, it's cool to have this option in general because it's you know it's really cool to be able to stream your uh, powerful machine into a smaller machine. You can put it on like a TV, put it on a Raspberry Pi, and play it on a uh, like over your network, of course, you should use a wired network for this because it would be limited over Wi-Fi. But you could do that and make it where you could take your, you know, very powerful computer, leave it in your office and then go into your living room and play games there, which is a really cool concept. But it's more than that. The part that makes this even more awesome is related to Steam's remote to remote play together feature. So Remote Play Together allows you to host a game on your local PC and invite others to join you, and they don't even need to own the game. It's a way to turn local co-op and multiplayer games into an online-supported title and play with anybody. So this is awesome because there are some games that I'd love to get it, but I just didn't because they didn't have online multiplayer. Then it was with Remote Play Together, you could still get that game and then turn it into playing it online, even if the game doesn't support it. In fact, some game devs are now using Remote Play Together as a workaround in order to sort of have a multiplayer infrastructure rather than having their own custom one. But now, rem Remote Play Together is very cool on its own, but combine this with the new Streamlink app, and then it's, that's where it gets crazy. There's a new inv Invite Anyone aspect of Steam's Remote Play Together system, and it's powered by Steamlink Tech, which means you'll be able to send a link to anyone you know to join in a game even if they don't have a Steam account, they just need the Steam Link app. So you just download and install the Flat Hub, uh, Flat Pack for the Steam Link, and then you can have anyone join you regardless if they have a Steam account or not, which is just fantastic. So you have the Steam Link stuff, it's really cool. You have the Remote Play Together, which is also really cool. Combine those two, and you now have the Remote Play Together invite anyone. Uh, mode, which is just fantastic. It's just awesome. So I am so happy about seeing this. So thanks to Valve. Thanks to Collabora for doing this. Uh, it makes it possible for people to play games that normally wouldn't be able to. And I, I just love that. Uh, and also, you know, thanks to Valve for doing, making Linux gaming so awesome over the years. Uh, just you know, every time I talk about gaming, I always want to, you know, uh, thank Valve for doing that because it is 
pretty much Valve doing most of the work to accomplish this over the past, I don't know, almost 10 years or so. So it's fantastic. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below for you to, to look into it and also link to the Flat Hub if you'd like to check it out. Up next in the show, let's talk about something, uh, an announcement that Canonical made related to Flutter. So Canonical announced that Flutter is now the default choice for future mobile and desktop apps at the recent Flutter Engage event. Uh, Flutter is an open source and cross-platform UI development framework powered by the Dart programming language, and it was created by Google. Uh, It is becoming more and more popular in part thanks to it being an easy way to convert web apps into mobile apps and to desktop apps. And Flutter has announced that the SDK, uh, desktop SDK is now available as a stable release. Canonical has been a vocal supporter of Flutter. It worked with Google to bring Flutter SDK to Linux desktops via the Snap Store, and it plans to create their new Ubuntu installer using the framework, which we talked about in a previous episode of Twill. And this is a pretty big commitment for the whole the default choice that they said for Canonical to make. Uh, Flutter has not had support on Linux for that long, so for them to commit to it already is very interesting. And you may be wondering, why did they move away from, why are they like seemingly moving away from GTK? Well, they haven't stated exactly why, but here's my speculation of what this is. Uh, Because GTK has limitations when it comes to cross-platform and that it's really not cross-platform. You can kind of get it to work on Windows, sure, but that's pretty much where it stops. Uh, Qt, on the other hand, is very much cross-platform, but the Qt company seems to enjoy shooting themselves in the foot often. Uh, They've changed their licensing in order to lock down certain versions of the toolkit, and that's not very forward-thinking of them, to say the least, and that is a reason why Qt is not on deck in this case. So that... This is probably why Flutter looks inviting to them and why they worked on bringing the framework to Linux. At the the event for Flutter Engage, there was a quote from Ken Van Dyne from Canonical saying that Canonical not only enabled Flutter for Linux, we also worked with the Flutter team to publish the Flutter SDK as a snap on the Snap Store, the App Store for Linux. That last part about the Snap Store being the App Store for Linux, that's an interesting statement, and I'm sure we'll probably... Uh, prompt some debate in in the comments about that. Uh, Flutter isn't Electron, so it won't have the same kind of holdups as Electron does in regards to the amount of resources. So there is some merit for why Flutter is being used. Uh, And it's also a very popular framework and toolkit by a lot of different developers now, especially with the uh, web development uh, piece because web apps are easier to convert to uh, desktop and mobile apps with this new framework. So it is heavily being adopted by a lot of web app developers. Uh, so, But it's it's still kind of too early to tell how optimized they will be in for the Linux desktop. It, well, it's too, it's too early for to do any kind of comparison, so we'll just have to wait and see on that. But if you'd like to learn more about this, also about Flutter, Flutter I'll have links to a bunch of stuff for the, the this event for Flutter Engage, as well as some information about related to Canonical. If you'd like to check it out, I'll have links to all that in the show notes below. And speaking of Electron, we were comparing the Flect- uh, Flutter and Electron together. There's actually something, some news related to Electron's latest release of version 12 of this Chromium-powered native web app framework that has been released. I know that's a weird thing to say, native web app. Well... As you can see, the, the framework is native. The web apps aren't. So you get it. Anyway, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this because it's it's a pretty technical, heavy topic. But I did want to cover a few things. Like there's some new features, and also they've removed a Flash support. 
uh, which makes sense because Chromium removed it as well. But I wanted to uh, kind of talk about something that I think is super interesting that was no- pointed out on Reddit. Uh, user v- Viali, I probably said it wrong, sorry, uh, mentions on Reddit that the Electron 12 has just been released with Wayland support. They also state that there's nothing specific about Wayland in the release notes, but it has been it can be tested by installing the latest Electron version and running a command that sets Wayland as the Ozone platform. So you can actually test it out. And I thought this is a really interesting thing because a lot of people don't like uh, Electron for one of the reasons that it didn't have support for Wayland and saying that it has uh, is getting support for Wayland is good for a lot of cases because there's a lot of applications that are pretty much only on Electron. For example, the Element uh, application for Matrix is an Electron application, as well as uh, Discord and a bunch of others. So it, it's really cool to see this happening because it means more support for Wayland, faster that Wayland gets to the point of production ready and all that stuff. So I'm happy to see that. Now, the debate of whether or not you like Electron, that's up in the air. And we could talk about that in another future episode or at the end of this show and the post show if someone wants to do that in the, from the live stream. But for now, we're going to leave it right there. And if you would like to have a conversation like that in the future, be sure to join the live stream, which we do every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So uh, in this case, you won't be able to participate now, but maybe in the future. So there you go. Also, links in the show notes for the Reddit post, as well as the uh, release notes for Electron 12. All of that in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service to build modern cloud-native apps. So you can use this interface to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale applications. Now, it has support for a lot of different program languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, and Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. It also offers high scalability and zero infrastructure management. But what does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure like the app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push the code to production in just a few clicks. It also helps you secure your apps automatically by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates and also protects your apps from DDoS attacks. You can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. And this is just fantastic. The app platform is, it sounds kind of complicated, but when you when you try it, it can do so much and it makes it, um, the process super simple. You just make the code uh, on your GitHub or your GitLab, then you r- let the system pull it in and run it and create it for you. And it just, and it works. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast, and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have a beta build for OpenSUSE 15.3 that has been released. The final version of 15.3 is expected in sometime in June, uh, but OpenSUSE 15.3's beta is available right now, so you can try it out if you want to, but keep in mind, it is beta, so there you go. Uh, they also state in this uh, post that OpenSUSE Leap 15.3, uh, this version is 
more about, um, you know, re- not really re- refreshing the distribution packages, but it's more about building the distribution. So like there are some, some significant changes to the distribution uh, related to the jump concept. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, many of the packages will remain the same as those in OpenSUSE Elite 15.2 with a bit of hardware en- enablement and security backports being added. Uh, but they are they are doing some cool stuff. Like, for example, they've added a version of glibc, which brings support for Power 10. And also they've updated the XFCE desktop, so users will have the new 4.16 version. And they've also uh, added support for the S390X architecture. But the biggest change for this is how Leap is built and its relationship to the SUSE Linux Enterprise, or SLE. Uh, Leap 15.3 Beta is based on the jump concept that combines OpenSUSE backports with binaries from SUSE Linux Enterprise, or SLE. And this is really, really cool. It's a, it's kind of complicated. We've talked about it in previous episodes, so I'll have links to that in, in the show notes if you want to check it out in more details. Uh, but also, I wanted to let you know that we had an interview with Gerald Pfeiffer from uh, SUSE. He's the CTO of SUSE and also the chairman of the OpenSUSE board. And it's a really interesting interview. So it's on Destination Linux 2.12. So you definitely don't want to miss it. If you haven't watched it already, there's a lot of really great information. We talk about uh, Gerald in terms of his uh, Indian involvement in Linux, but also we talk about the jump concept as a whole and how the relationship between SLE and OpenSUSE works and that sort of stuff. I think you'll very much enjoy it. So you'll find links to the interview and and also the blog post about OpenSUSE 15.3 beta in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Linux Mint. There's actually quite a few things that they've announced in their um, their February 2021 monthly news report uh, type of blog post. And we're talking about uh, Cinnamon and also the update mechanism that's related to uh, how updates are handled based on the topic we covered last week related to the you know, the users not updating their systems frequently and how they're going to address it. So we'll get to that in a minute. But we're going to first start off with Cinnamon. So Cinnamon 5.0 is coming out fairly soon, and they're going to be doing some stuff that I think is pretty interesting. So they're, they're, they've talked about some memory links that were found that are hard to pinpoint, someone, such as someone leaving their computer on for, you know, many days, not knowing what exactly is the cause of creating a memory leak. And Linux Mint is creating a workaround using their system settings. You'll be able to set a maximum amount of RAM that Cinnamon can use. And if you do that, the if, if also the maximum amount is reached by Cinnamon, it will restart itself. So they say that you won't lose your session or your Windows. It will just be unresponsive for a second or so while it restarts itself internally. It will keep a log of also these events when it, and then it happens so that you can see if this happens often or also help you troubleshoot an issue if there is one. So this is an interesting thing because I, I think the most important part of it is the log part because it will help figure out like it was harder to pinpoint these issues and now they're making it possible to do so, which I find uh, a very much big improvement. So well done there. And also related to Cinnamon, they have improved the spices management for their desktop environment. If you're not familiar, spices are what they call extensions. And so it's really nice to see that they're improving that in regards to installed versus available to install and that sort of stuff. They have more details on the blog post. I'll link to that in the show notes if you want to check that out. But the biggest topic of this news here is related to the updates. So last week, the Linux Mint project shared the troubling news in some people's opinion of how uh, how many users of are you know not they're behind on important security updates and i think that this is uh, troubling because you know people not running updates could be a problem because it means that they are going to be still susceptible to uh, attacks and it's it's important for people to do those upgrades 
But there's also a case of some people using end-of-life versions that have unfortunate situation where uh, last week I talked about it, and it was actually interesting because I got comments about how they said I was bashing Linux Mint for this, and I wasn't. I was just stating this is the case because Linux Mint, the, to- the, the specific end-of-life version they mentioned was Linux Mint 17. And Linux Mint 17 has an update manager that sort of discourages updates. So it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't update because it sort of makes them not want to because it has that one to five level tier system with four and five essentially saying that updates were dangerous. So I get why those people weren't updating and why they're still on that end of life version because when you discourage updates, that's what happens. They don't update. So I was just saying it's not really a bash against Linux Mint and I, Linux Mint, and I think that they're still going to get people saying that even now, but I think it's, uh, it's worth noting because it's not that surprising with people using end of life version when the updater in that version kind of discourages updates. And I think it's worth noting. So there you go. They are trying to help the, uh, the issue. They're trying to address it. So Linux Mint is working on improvements to its update manager to encourage users to apply updates. So the Linux Mint project posted in their monthly report that they're working on updating the update manager software itself to encourage users. And the way they do it, they're saying that, uh, this is a quote from the blog post, in the next release, the manager won't just look for available updates. It will also keep track of particular metrics and be able to detect cases where updates are overlooked. Some of the metrics are when, when was the last time updates were applied, when was the last time packages were upgraded on the system, and for how many days has a particular update been shown. In some cases, the update manager will be able to remind you to apply updates. In a few of them, it might even insist. Now that last part has some people up in arms about updates. The part where they say it might even insist. Does that mean forced upgrades? Mm, we don't know yet, because immediately following that, they say, we don't want it to be dumb and get in your way. If you are handling things your way, it will detect smart patterns and usages. It will also be configurable and let you change the way it's set up. We have key principles at Linux Mint. One of the re- one of them is that this is your computer, not ours. We also have many use cases in mind and don't want to make Linux harder to use for any of them. We're still forming strategies and deciding when and how the manager should make itself more visible. So it's too soon to speak about these aspects to get into the details, which you're probably interested in the most here about this. So... This is a really interesting situation because they're both saying that it may insist updates happen, but also it will give you the option to choose and it will detect how you use your computer to do so. So we're not really sure exactly right now. Uh, they haven't given the details related to like how this is going to work, as, the, as I mentioned in the, the, in the, the quote, that uh, it may have some elements of forcing it, but it also may only do that for people who don't typically get updates, who don't do updates at all or something like that. Maybe that's what they're referring to. We don't know yet, but I think it's interesting. And I think there's going to be some debate about this, uh, especially with the whole insistence thing, because if they don't specify exactly what they mean by that, I think there's going to be uh, some people disappointed in terms of like forced updates, because a lot of people don't like windows for that particular reason. And, Maybe switching to Linux, having to deal with that again, you know, might create some issues for them. Now, I think updates are important, and I think security updates are obviously way more important, and they need to be done. How you manage that, that's where it becomes complicated. So I I understand why they'd want to address this, and I also understand, like, where the issue comes from. 
but um, I don't know if this is the the best way to do it because they haven't really fully expressed what that way is. But I am very interested to see how they ad- address it because if they are able to make it where people who want the updates to be controlled and the way they want it to be, and they're able to like detect how that's done versus if you don't do updates, then they force it. I mean, that's an interesting issue, uh, an interesting situation. So I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing what they come up with. So if you'd like to learn more about this and check out the uh, news, the February post on their monthly news blog, I'll have links to that in the show notes so you can learn more about it. And uh, let me know what you think in the comments below. Also on the DLN forum, let me know what you think related to, you know, whether or not this part where they say it might even insist kind of makes rubs you the wrong way. Or are you looking at it as more of like, maybe it's depending on the circumstance, you know, let me know what you think in the comments below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about another distro, and this one is called System Rescue. So this latest release of System Rescue is 8.0. If you may be familiar with what it used to be called, it used to be called System Rescue CD. Uh, that was what it was, long, was known for a long time. This is a Linux System Rescue toolkit available as a bootable medium for administrating and repairing your system after a data crash for some stuff like that. It aims to provide an easy way to carry out administrative tasks on your computer, such as creating or editing hard disk partitions and that sort of stuff. And it comes with a, a, a lot of Linux system utilities like uh, Gparted, FS Archiver, file system tools, and other tools like you know, file managers and editors and that sort of thing. Uh, And it can be used for uh, managing uh, Linux and Windows computers. Also, it can be used on servers and desktops. It's a really interesting distribution that's been around for a long time related to uh, basically having a repairing toolkit. Uh, So it runs as a live ISO, so you can just put it on a USB drive and then run it whenever you need to. Uh, So it it might be handy to have. And this latest version of System Rescue with 8.0 has a lot of updates. Uh, so they updated the kernel to the long-term support version uh, 5.10.20. They've also updated the partitioning tools of Parted 3.4 and Gparted 1.2. They've updated the file, a couple of file systems for ButterFS and XFS. And they've also upgraded the XFCE desktop environment to version 4.16. As well as something I think is really interesting that they've added a paper key, which is ability to uh, print private keys on a piece of paper. So uh, that this is an interesting distribution. If you've never heard of it, it might be worth checking out in terms of having a repair tool. There's a few others as well, but this is one that's been around for a very long time. So you might want to check it out. I have links to it for their latest release, as well as the uh, download for to, to check out more if you'd like to. All of that in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have another distro to talk about. In this case, it is a firewall distro called IP Fire. So Michael Trem- Tremere, uh, Tremor, I don't know, has announced the release of IP Fire 2.25 Core 154, which is a version scheme that just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, IP Fire is a Linux-based distribution designed for routers and firewalls. This version comes with a large number of package upgrades and like uh, DNS resolution improvements, also WPA3 client support, which is really good. If you're not familiar, WPA stands for Wi-Fi Protected Access. It's a series of security protocols designed to safeguard your Wi-Fi traffic. And this, the difference between the previous versions of WPA and this WPA3 is that there's a lot of improvements to security on WPA3. So for example, your passwords are much harder to crack. Also, your, your old 
old data is safer. So if someone is able to get your password, they're not able to take the data that is previously already, even if they collect that data and get the password, they would still wouldn't be able to uh, break through the old data, which is really cool piece of WPA3. Uh, they would be able to sniff tra traffic in the future, but not at the old state. So that's cool. Also, uh, public Wi-Fi networks are more secure uh, with WPA3, which is very, very important. Uh, it's still, I still would say, don't use a public Wi-Fi as some kind of, uh, you know, reliable connection. You still want to do like some kind of VPN or Tor or both or whatever. Not just use public Wi-Fi. That's just a side tip. Uh, but anyway, in this latest release, they stated that this is an enormous update. They say that we have been working hard in the lab to update the underlying operating system to harden and improve IP fire, and we have added WPA3 client support and made DNS faster and more resilient against broken internet connections. They say that the DNS proxy working inside of IP fire will now reuse any TLS or TCP connection for DNS resolution, making it substantially faster. Before, a TCP or TLS connection had to be opened and closed after response was received, causing a lot of overhead. So they've done a lot of performance improvements related to the, the DNS resolution, and also the adding support for WPA3 is fantastic as well. If you'd like to learn more about IP Fire, I'll have a link to the latest blog post as well as the main website in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about another distribution. Well, not really, technically. So... It's called Linux from Scratch. The latest release of 10.1 has been released. Uh, so if you aren't familiar with this, Linux from Scratch, aka LFS, is not really a distro. It's a book of step-by-step -step instructions of building a Linux system from source code. Basically, it's kind of like the most hardcore you can go when, you, when it comes to digging into the inner workings of a Linux system. You know, Arch is known for being very difficult to install, and for the average user-level beginners, that is most certainly true, but LFS makes Arch installation look like a nice, casual walk in the park. Uh, so, the Linux, Linux from Scratch community announced the release of LFS version 10.1. Uh, there's major changes, including uh, toolchain updates for glibc 2.33, bin utils uh, 2.36.1, also, they have updated uh, about 40 packages since the last release, and they say that changes to the text have also been made throughout the book. The, the Linux kernel has been updated to version 4.10.17, and in uh, coordination with this release, they say that the new version of LFS using the systemd package is also being released. This package implements the newer systemd style of system initialization and control and is consistent with LFS in most packages. So this is really interesting. If you'd like to learn more about LFS, or maybe if you want to spend a week of your life attempting to install it, then you can check out the links in the show notes for the latest release of Linux from Scratch 10.1. Up next in the show is something that I am so excited to tell you about, and that is ConSave. This is a fantastic thing. Well, let's give you a little bit of a backstory. So in episode 214 of Destination Linux, we had the, the show was about customizing your Linux desktop. That's what that episode was about. And in that episode, I mentioned, I wish KDE made it easier to save your configurations, to be able to export them and import them, and in theory, also save share them with people and that sort of stuff. And less than a week later comes ConSave. So basically, that's exactly what ConSave is. So ConSave 
will let you save your current KDE Plasma customization and switch to another one basically instantly because it creates these uh, profile systems with a uh, ConSave is a command line tool. It's bit written in Python and it creates, it saves all your configuration files for your KDE Plasma setup. And it does it in these profile systems that you can not only just export the profiles for later, you can also import them, which is pretty important, of course. But this means that in addition to this, you can share these profiles and people could be able to use your layout, which I think is very, very interesting. Also, the most the reason I wanted it was because it means that you could easily import your tools or your configuration for uh, KDE Plasma on whatever distro you're using. So if you want to distro hop, you it's it's way easier to do it now, and that is great. So you can you can even save GTK theme settings with ConSave which is a very important thing that some other tools that kind of sort of did this didn't have that feature, which is a very important piece. If Well, especially since there's so many GTK apps, it is important. So I haven't had a chance to play with it yet, but I look forward to doing so, and I will certainly make a video on it because I will finally be able to share my crazy setup with people. For those who don't know, if you watch the latest episode, or not the latest episode, it was 214 of DL, uh, you want to check that out and learn more about my customization. It is very extensive. It is not just a simple, you know, theme change here and there, icon change. I change basically everything. The entire workflow has changed. So that's one of the reasons I love Plasma is because I have so, so much control to be able to do that. But the thing that kind of bothers me about it is that previously, before ConSave anyway, I wasn't able to do, um, uh, you know, easily distro hopping because in order to have my configuration, it takes a long time to build it out because it's a lot of stuff. Now I could have just saved all the config folders and everything. Cause that is technically all they are. All the settings in KDE Plasma are just files that save it in like configurations here and there, but there's so many and they're kind of scattered that it's hard to really keep track of it. And, you know, and sometimes they change it depending on, you know, new features and that sort of stuff. So it's just hard to keep up with it. But having a project for that purpose is awesome. So I will be making a video about ConSave to be more like showing how to do it. And also in that video, I'll be showing you about my customization and stuff so you can get the, the profile if you want to try it out yourself. Uh, it's just very, very cool. And the fact that we, we talked about it and then less than a week, like all of a sudden it exists. And so just thank you so much. I'm not sure if, if you decided to do it because of the show or not, but either way, thank you very much for making this. I am so excited to play with it. And if you want to check it out for yourself, then, you know, as you know, link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. A password manager is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And how does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice is to have a different password for every account on every website. There are so many times that I have had people tell me that, you know, here's my password to get into the account. You need to do work for me or, you know, it's a friend giving their password, that sort of stuff. And then they give me the password and it is terrible. And or they'll tell me that that password is used everywhere. And that is the worst possible approach, because if any time that, that that is compromised, it means everything that you use that password for is compromised at that point. So don't do that. Have a different password for every account on every website. And I know that that makes it really complicated and painful to do. But Bitwarden solves all of this by providing tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault 
auto-generate those passwords for you so you don't have to come up with them, and even automatically fill those passwords in on login forms so you don't have to type them. So you can access your data across all different types of devices as well with web browser support, uh, mobile apps, desktop application, and even on the command line if you'd like to do that as well. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only one with access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust, not just because of all these great features, but also because it is 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They also bring in third-party security firms, which is fantastic because they have them audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible, which is just awesome. Uh, you go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get it for free? Because you can. But I think you'll also want to check out their premium account because their premium account has a lot of cool features and is ridiculously inexpensive. So you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords or TOTP. Also, you get priority customer service and so much more. And you get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right, less than a dollar per month. And I've actually helped people can, uh, go into not only just doing their own, getting their own Bitwarden account, but also get a Bitwarden for their family because there's a family thing where you can actually share easily different passwords for people, which is very convenient. And it sounds like that's a problem with sharing passwords because, you know, how do you do that securely? Well, they have a mechanism built into it to do that. And it is fantastic. Uh, also, businesses using that for a business account. Bitwarden provides a lot of service uh, solutions for that as well. There's so many great things. Check out Bitwarden and like, make the smart move like many from the community have. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. Get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that gets open source. You get that $10 per year or less than a dollar per month a premium account and show them appreciation for supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of Blender, which is a piece of software that is known for being able to do a lot of things. And at this point, everything. It can do 3D modeling, uh, 2D animations now. Also uh, does video editing and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, they've actually done a complete new workflow uh, re reworking of um, creating and uh, editing meshes, uh, new physics simulation methods, faster cycles rendering, uh, better composition for EV, uh, and also a bunch more. Uh, in fact, they even say in this in this announcement that Blender 2.92 marks the beginning of something incredible. So they've added something new, which is very very cool, and it is being able to do a geometry node editing, which opens the door for creating and manipulating meshes with a node-based system. They've also added uh, point scattering, uh, silhouette uh, ma management. So like basically it's called silhouette anytime, essentially. So it's, it allows you to uh, manipulate and shape silhouettes of the objects so that you can, it's, it's basically an easier way to see and to manipulate something by turning on a different mode and being able to use the grab tool to adjust it, which is very cool. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for a video that explains it better because it's hard to explain it without showing it, but there you go. Uh, also, they've added uh, ability to do uh, grease pencils, which is uh, basically taking the, well, they already have that anyway, but they added a ability to use curves manipulation on the pencil strokes through the grease pencil mode, which uses Bezier curves, which is just a nice, um, it's a, it's a design 
style that is in like Illustrator, Inkscape and that sort of stuff that being able to adjust the pencil lines that you do, like if you draw on and, and convert it into a digital form, you can then take that and modify it. It's really cool. It's really cool. Video explains it better again. Uh, they've also improved the rendering by doing hybrid rendering. And also they've added a new trace image feature uh, support for image sequencing. So this is very, very interesting because it's essentially being able to trace motion because it has support for image sequences, which means that you can essentially turn a storyboard into 3D. Very cool concept. Uh, there's a lot more stuff in this latest release of Blender 2.92. I can't cover everything because it's very complicated. And if, even if I did have voted the entire video show to it, you know, that's like 20 minutes talking about all the things. So I have a link in the video that exp explains a lot more uh, clearly uh, for the specific things if you are interested, as well as a link to the 2.92 release notes. So you can check that out. All of that, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, a application called Vital, which is a spectral warping wavetable synthesizer, has now gone open source. This is great. This is awesome news. Uh, Matt Titel is also the developer of Helmsynth, which is a it's an application to create uh, music using a synthesizer uh, software. So it's essentially allows you to do spectral oscillator. Uh, warping. You can also turn your own samples into wavetables using their uh, pitch splice or voco vocode wavetable converter. It also it's also kind of like a visual synthesizer, so you can actually see what you're doing and how it works. It also does like um, it has animated controls, uh, filter responses, waveforms, oscilloscopes, spectrograms, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and also, uh, let's break down like why this is a big deal. So I'm not a musician, so much of what I just said is it's like a different language to me. I'll admit that. However, it's not just a story about a software going open source. That is awesome. But it's more importantly because of what Vital is. So this is more than just that they went open source, but it's also being touted by a lot of people in the industry and in the community for music musicians uh, and uh, audio engineers saying that Vital is kind of a game changer in what it can do. And the fact that it's open source is even more interesting. So they are saying that Vital is a competitor to X Xfers. I'm not sure if that's Xfers, that's how you say it right or not, but you know, Xfers uh, Serum Wavetable Synthesizer. Now, Serum is $189 to purchase. So compare that to free, and you have some potential there for some craziness to happen, right? Uh, it's also interesting because Vital implements a form of freemium model for the sustaining the development of the application. Now, this is something I talked about in episode 215 of the Destination Linux podcast on topic whether or not like, because a lot of people look at open source as being like a polar opposite or exclusive to uh, commercialism. And I don't think that's the, the case. Open source doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be commercial as well. And freemium model is a is a very good description of like how it could work. And I think that Vital is a good example of that. So they went open source, but they also have premium editions. So they offer the source code and they have a free edition of the software, but also they offer a more powerful premium edition that costs a much more reasonable $80 compared to $189 of Serum. So I think this is really interesting, not only because it went open source, but also because they use the uh, freemium model. And they also are a good example of 
a popular tool that can benefit from being open source, but also benefit from using a commercial freemium style model. And I think that it's awesome that they're doing it. And it looks like a really nice application. And the fact that it's being touted as a, a very, you know, like a game changer in that industry is also cool. So while I don't fully understand how it works, I do want to play with it and learn a bit about it. And the fact that they make it easy to do so with a free edition and they also make it an open source is very, very cool. So anyway, I just think it's, I just wanted to bring it up because very cool that this is happening. And also it's a, it's a good example of uh, something that I was talking about in the uh, episode 215 of Destination Linux, that you can have some very powerful open source applications and you can also keep them sustainable by doing something like this. And I think this is something that a lot of applications should consider. And there you go. So if you'd like to learn more about Vital, you, you can find a link to their GitHub page for the source code, as well as the way to get the software if you'd like to get it. Uh, all of those links in the show notes. Up next in the show, let's keep it on the audio engineer type of stuff, and let's talk about our door. So our door 6.6 has been released, and this is, if you're not familiar, our door is a DAW or a digital audio workstation, and it has been a proponent of, you know, well, open source. It's been a very important component in open source music creation uh, for many, many years. Uh, it's fantastic uh, piece of software and this latest release has a lot of new features like uh, tuning possibilities keeping track of x runs during recording new lua script to send tuning defined in scala files as S uh, mts messages also there's a new lua script to send arbitrary uh, 12 tet or 12 tet uh, tuning mess as messages as mts messages but the most interesting to me is the uh, the term they call show automation on touch uh, it's an interesting way of describing it, but it lets you quickly and easily uh, adjust pitch and add muffler and a bunch of other stuff to it directly on the clip in the timeline. So you can just create, uh, choose a, a mod uh, mod uh, modifier for uh, adjustments on the clip and then click anywhere on the track and you see the changes happening. And it also does it very quickly, which makes it allows you to do just a ton of customization to see, you know, how you could use all these different modules very quickly. And I think it's just fantastic to see them add it to this latest release because it makes it easier for me, for people like me, who's not really well versed in how Ardor works or digital audio workstations in general to get the grasp of it very quickly, which I have played with it and it is cool. Anyway, also, this release has experimental support for Apple's M1 Mac hardware. Um, and now I also want to talk about, the, you just talked about Vital. So I do want to tell you that Vital um, doesn't seem to have the best support in Ardor and it, when it comes to plug-in aspects, but you can use them separately and as standalone applications and work with them that way. And that does seem to work, but there does seem to be some issues with the plug-in workflow right now, but it is actively being discussed in both communities so if you're someone who this might affect, well, now you know. Uh, I think uh, the Ardor 6.6 .6 is definitely a big update, and I'll have a, a link in the uh, show notes, not only to the news about 6.6 .6 as the release notes, but also a link to a video that explains better the uh, show automation on touch feature, which I think is really cool. So if you're interested in audio, uh, you know, audio workstations or audio engineering and that sort of stuff, this is definitely something to check out. So I have links to that in the show notes below. 
Up next in the show, we have some Humble Bundles to talk about because I just, I really like Humble Bundles and there's some really cool ones here that I want to show you, especially this pocket reference guide from O'Reilly. This is a, a bundle of eBooks for stuff like uh, C pocket reference, C++ pocket reference, uh, SQL pocket guide, 3E, and a lot more. Uh, they also have a, a front-end web development learning uh, bundle for uh, other eBooks and that sort of stuff. It also has courses from uh, Pluralsight, which is a really cool website that teach, does like a training site. And they have a lot of stuff related to learning how to do uh, HTML, CSS, and that sort of stuff for front-end development, which is fantastic. So check that out. And also there's another one that's for those who like survival guides for something, uh, Survive Everything is what it's called. This bundle gives you stuff like Pocket Disaster Survival Guide, Homesteading. I don't know what that is. And Joy of Home Distilling. I do know what that is. So those are uh, uh, books you can get inside of this bundle. Uh, and also, uh, Loop Hero is currently on sale in the Humble Store. If you're not familiar, uh, episode 215 of Destination Linux, Ryan introduced us to a game that is currently getting a lot of hype. Uh, while I'm not much of an RPG gamer myself... I thought it might be worth noting for those who were interested that Loop Gamer, Loop Gamer, Loop Hero is currently on sale for fifteen percent off at the Humble Store. So there you go. If you are into RPGs, like roguelike type of games, check that out. Uh, you'll find links to all of these in the show notes. And also, just really quick, these are affiliate links. So if you, it's not a sponsorship, but if you would like to use uh, to get any of the Humble bundles, I have a link to all of the bundles that are currently available in the show notes. All of these links will be affiliate links, so a small percentage will be uh, as like a kind of a small commission to uh, if you do use them. So if you if you choose to purchase any of the bundles, I would very much appreciate it if you were to use the links below. Uh, yeah, so. Links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you'd like to become a patron, you'll be able to join me in during the live stream in the recording stadium, which is a gigantic 50,000-foot uh, square foot uh, virtual room it's okay it's it's just it's a the, instead of calling it the studio it's not very clear what i mean i call it something ridiculous recording stadium that's what we came up with there it is so you can join me in the recording stadium to discuss the uh topics in between uh subjects and also to just to hang out at the end of the show because every week we have a patron only hangout we also have a little bit of a uh, at the end of the live stream we have a little bit of a hangout but you know the patron only thing is a really fun uh, I think is really fun. You, you know, that's up to you to decide whether or not you think it is. But if you would like to become a patron to join that, you can go to uh, tuxedo.com slash contribute to learn more about that. Or you can also support the channel and the show by ordering the Linux is everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. They're also there. You can find the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm currently wearing in the show uh, and also a lot of other stuff. So go to dlnstore.com to check out the shirts, hoodies, mugs, and so much more. Uh, and if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux Network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Snell with DLN. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your number one source of Linux good news.